0: Colonial Georgia did not allow slavery for over 15 years after it was first founded. Why and how did that change? We'll discuss that today on Footnoting History. Hello and welcome to this episode of Footnoting History. I'm Elizabeth, and today we are discussing the founding of Georgia and how it became a slave colony. On January 19, 1861, the state of Georgia seceded from the United States of America. In their secession document, the writers opened by stating, quote, The people of Georgia, having dissolved their political connection with the government of the United States of America, present to their Confederates and the world the causes which have led to the separation. For the last ten years, we have had numerous and serious causes of complaint against our non-slaveholding Confederate states with reference to the subject of African slavery, end quote. They called out the North's refusal to abide by the Fugitive Slave Law and return escaped enslaved peoples, as well as the North's resistance to allowing slavery in the Western territories and states. And yet, if one returns to the founding of the colony of Georgia in February 1733, Its founders, and potentially even many of its early settlers, would not have guessed that Georgia, of any of the southern colonies, eventually the states, would involve itself in this fight because, when the colony of Georgia was founded, slavery was not allowed. When I was in grade school and high school, we were taught that Georgia was founded to house England's debtors and occasional criminals. Well, as usual, the past is a little more complicated than that. This episode does not, unfortunately, have time to delve into the relationship between the British settlers and the Native American tribes who were already settled there, but I'm not leaving follow-up episodes off the table for numerous topics this episode tangentially touches. Stories of Kusaponikisa, better known by her English name of Mary Musgrove, a half-Creek, half-English woman, has entered legendary status in Georgia history, similar to Pocahontas or Sacagawea, and she deserves her own episode. But for this footnote, that shouldn't be a footnote, we focus on how the colony of Georgia switched from outlawing African slavery to embracing it. And now, as always, my caveat on exactly how narrow is the slice of history. While researching, I read an article by Thomas Wilkins which included a footnote, yes, a footnote, where he raised an interesting point, an issue we actually saw in my episode on American Indians as POWs in colonial New England the different legal categories of African enslaved persons versus Native American enslaved persons. For historians of slavery in colonial Georgia, the seminal book is Betty Wood's aptly named Slavery in Colonial Georgia, 1730 to 1775. Yet it only addresses the question of African slavery, not Native American slavery. In an article from 1995, Rodney Bain explores the evidence for Native American slavery in Georgia, He notes that while the 1733 laws from when the colony was officially established banned any slavery, African or Native American, in Georgia, the act of 1735 that superseded it only outlawed that of African slavery. According to Bain, over the 1730s to the Revolutionary War, it is possible that there were hundreds of Native Americans and slave persons in the colony. One Native American slave owner was the Mary Musgrove I mentioned just a few minutes ago, who, along with her husband, brought three Native American slave persons with her when they moved to Georgia, and she still apparently owned them even when married to her third husband. By the mid-1700s, however, and as Bain acknowledges, African slavery had largely replaced Native American slavery in the Southeast, and in many cases enslaved peoples, both Native American and Black, often had children together, making distinctions between the groups harder. While there is now much work being done on Native American slave persons, especially in Georgia and the other southern colonies, this episode focuses on the enslavement of Africans in colonial Georgia, and when considering this topic, we need to start with the three men who shaped the debate, James Oglethorpe, Thomas Stevens, and Johann Martin Bolzius. We begin then with the most well-known of the three, James Oglethorpe. Oglethorpe was born to a prominent English family in 1696. Although the tenth child, he was educated at Eden and Cambridge. Eventually, after serving with the royal family, he returned to England and was elected to the same seat in the House of Commons that his father and an elder brother had held before him. Within a short time, Oglethorpe made a name for himself championing prison reform, and his plan was somewhat simple. Create a new colony in the Americas to which prisoners, many of whom were imprisoned due to debt, could be sent. In 1732, at the age of 35, the king granted Oglethorpe a charter to found this new colony. The Georgia Plan accomplished two goals for the British. It allowed them a place to send off struggling citizens, as well as how to create a fortified border. You see, the Georgia colony was to be the military protection against the Spanish in Florida. The question of slavery came up quickly, but was just as quickly squashed. It was decided to limit land grants so that settlers would be close enough to serve as protection. The large plantations of the Carolinas, therefore, would not be legally possible. And with that, neither would be the reliance on enslaved labor. Additionally, there was concern that if the white settlers were allowed to use enslaved persons, the settlers would continue or perhaps adopt less hardworking lives. Finally, there was a fear of enslaved people escaping to Florida to live or fight among the Spanish. These goals for the colony led the trustees, including Oglethorpe, who oversaw the colony, to determine that African slavery would not be permitted there, a belief that was codified in the Act of 1735. From the earliest stages, however, there were rumbles among the settlers. Savannah was one of the first towns settled by the British, and it was there that many of these grumbles and, eventually, petitions came from. Specifically, a group of lowland Scots. In 1737, the trustees appointed William Stevens to be their official correspondent on the ground in Georgia, as Oglethorpe's missives were few and far between. Very quickly, the pro-slavery lowland Scots in Savannah gained Stevens' ear, and they began to pass on stories they hoped would destroy Oglethorpe's reputation. One story that surfaced from Stevens' accounts and continued to be repeated until at least the 1940s was that Oglethorpe owned enslaved peoples and kept them on his property in South Carolina. This story was reiterated by Bishop Stevens in the 1840s and then the president of the Georgia Historical Society in 1949. But as Thomas Wilkins demonstrated in his 2004 article, these claims are largely unsubstantiated and seem to stem from the lowland Scots' desire to paint Oglethorpe as hypocritical rather than as truth. Somewhat quickly, it seems, William Stevens learned not to take the account of the lowland Scots as truth, and he also realized that he needed to be more diplomatic in his letters to the trustees. The same cannot be said of his son. Thomas Stevens had accompanied his father on his appointment to Georgia, most likely hoping to make a name and substantial fortune for himself. Quickly, though, he fell out of favor with some of the other settler leaders and was even accused of embezzlement by one of them, leading to his great embarrassment in the colony. As such, when the Lowland Scots reached out to him about their grievances, Thomas, who blamed Oglethorpe for his poor reputation, was more than happy to return to England with a petition from them in 1739. 1739. Over the next three years, Thomas and his father engaged in conflicting reports to the trustees and House of Commons. The Georgia colony was funded by Parliament, and every year the House of Commons voted on whether to send more money. Thomas and the guards argued that the colony would never work unless the land and labor restrictions of 1735 were undone. Their arguments were largely environmental and economic. They argued that the Georgia climate was unsuitable for hard labor by white men and that African men were made to work in a hot climate. Thomas's father, Stephen, however, argued that the colony was doing very well, thank you, and improving daily, and could everyone just ignore his son? Soon, Thomas became the paid representative of the Lowland Scots and others in Georgia who wished to include slavery in their laws. His most famous work was the 1743, quote, a brief account of the causes that have retarded the progress of the colony of Georgia in America, end quote, where Thomas likened African slavery as necessary as farm tools to the Georgia climate. As Thomas was less than complimentary to the trustees of the Georgia plan in his pamphlet, it earned him a rebuke from the Speaker of the House of Commons. And then Thomas went to South Carolina and never again entered the debate on slavery in colonial Georgia. Why is that, you asked? Was it the rebuke? Was that all it took? No. Thomas had been married the year before, and although his wife brought a nice dowry, the Georgia settlers had stopped paying him to represent them, and his dad had disinherited him. Arguing for slavery in Georgia was not as lucrative as Thomas might have thought. His arguments, however, stayed long after he did. But not all the settlers in Georgia were arguing for slavery. Besides the Highland Scots who signed an anti-slavery petition in 1739, there was another anti-slavery group a community of Protestant immigrants from Salzburg who'd been promised land, supplies until the first harvest, and all the rights of British citizenship if they moved to this new colony. Dozens of them agreed, and by the early 1730s were working to make a go of their town called Ebenezer near Savannah. Within a short time, they realized that the land was not fit for a farming community, and asked to move to another location a few miles away, which was allowed, and here they created the community of new Ebenezer. They were led by Johann Martin Boltzius, and the community can somewhat be seen as akin to leadership in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, as it was largely a theocracy where politics and religion overlapped. The inhabitants' first experience of African slavery was when they came through Charlestown, South Carolina, and they were not impressed by the treatment and behavior of the white owners. Next, 14 enslaved people were loaned to them to help build Ebenezer. The enslaved people were not Christian, refused to work well, and one raised an axe in anger against one of the residents. Boltius and the other Salzburgers, as they were and are known, were unsure of what to do, but the overseer who came with the enslaved people explained the punishments of whipping. The Salzburgers were horrified, and later they would argue the negative behavior by an enslaved person was due to poor treatment by the white community, but they also didn't believe that the negative behavior could be lessened with a good master. The Salzburgers, therefore, rejected slavery and believed that the biggest issue was that it ruined the moral character of white people. Bolzius, their religious and political head, also rejected the idea that enslaved people should be brought from Africa to be converted to Christianity, as he felt that he saw no evidence that white slave owners were focused on educating their enslaved people in religion. From the 1730s to the 1740s then, Bolzius and the Salzburgers wrote anti-slavery petitions and tracts and documents, where they said that everything was fine in Georgia and white people could make a profit without slavery. The secret according to the Salzburgers, and I think many modern Georgians could agree, was to do nothing outside between the hours of 10 a.m. and 3 p.m. But ultimately, the Salzburgers were on the losing side of this battle. When the time came, Boltius worked to limit the number of African enslaved people a Georgia settler could own, although according to his own writing, this may have been as much because he thought black enslaved people would lower the wages of white workers, but also because he did not want to live among or near Africans as he described their faces as, quote, disagreeable, end quote. And there in the 1740s, everything rested because, ultimately, the House of Commons agreed that even if the lack of slavery was a key issue in the failure of the economic situation in Georgia, although again, the resonance of New Ebenezer begged to differ, the bigger issue, they believed, was security from the Spanish. You see, from 1739 to 1748, the best-named war was being fought between the English and the Spanish. Yes, that's right, the War for Jenkins' Ear. As the Imperial War waged and eventually became the War of Austrian Secession, the use of Georgia as a military defense for the British colonies was paramount in parliamentary discussions of the colonies. The Spanish publicized that any enslaved persons who made it into Florida would be free and not return to the British colonies. The idea, then, of bringing African enslaved people into Georgia was moot regardless of the economic demands by settlers. Hey, remember James Oglethorpe? Of course you do. Well, he's back in our story, and he has a very good reason for disappearing from it for a number of years. During the War of Jenkins' Ear, Oglethorpe led the troops holding the line in Georgia, In 1740, Oglethorpe and his men failed at the Siege of St. Augustine, but in 1742 they did not fail at what became known as Bloody March, which was the first and last attempt by the Spanish to invade Georgia during this war. The battle was so decisively won by the English that even though the war for Jenkins Ear continued for another six years, there was a decreased need for the Georgia colony to serve as a fortified deterrent between British South Carolina and Spanish Florida. This win, then, allowed the members of Parliament and the trustees to reconsider the decision to keep slavery out of Georgia. However, there was still a fear that the white settlers of Georgia would become lazy if allowed to own enslaved people, as well as a concern about what was the correct ratio of white settlers to African enslaved people. One member of Parliament also voiced his concerns that by allowing slavery, Georgia would become a plantation colony where the divide between a small group of wealthy white landowners and a large group of impoverished white laborers would undo the mission of the colony, but that concern was largely ignored. By 1748, an agreement was reached that outlined how slavery was to be introduced into Georgia. And a quick pause here. Because by 1748, while African slavery was not, as far as we can determine, practiced in Savannah, it was already most likely practiced and ignored in cities such as Augusta, Georgia. But officially, it was not yet allowed. The Georgia settlers wrote up suggested legal codes for how they believed slavery could be practiced in their colony, and, by and large, these conditions were agreed to by the House of Commons. First, it was determined that enslaved people were to only be forced to labor in fields and rural areas or shipping docks, They were not to act as domestic servants. This decision goes back to the fear that the use of enslaved persons would make the white settlers lazy. Slavery in Georgia was not to be practiced according to these rules as it was, for example, in South Carolina. Next, a slave owner who, quote, "...willfully and maliciously murders, dismembers, or cruelly and barbarously," end quote, "...treats an enslaved person was to be punished as if they had assaulted or murdered a white person." Although, as Wood explains, the code did not grant enslaved people their own rights, so it's hard to know how these cases were going to be brought. Another decision was that enslaved people would not be required to work on Sundays. In these ways, the Georgia Code for Slavery hoped to be an example for the other British colonies. In May 1749, the members of the House of Commons agreed to repeal the Act of 1735 that limited slavery. From January 1, 1751, Georgia settlers were allowed to own enslaved people, but with a few more caveats added to the colonial slavery codes. First, there was to be a census that kept track of how many African slaves to white settlers there were, with the preferred ratio being 4 to 1. There were instructions on how enslaved people were to be used to help the production of silk, a section banning interracial marriage and laying out punishments for any who broke this, and finally, that not only were enslaved people not to work on Sunday, but slave owners were to educate enslaved people in the Christian tradition. To quote Betty Wood, this code, quote, had two primary aims, to permit slavery and to attempt to curb white behavior, end quote. There were no directions or requirements for the behavior of the enslaved people themselves, which was unusual, especially as this was within the decade of the Stono Rebellion, one of the most famous slave revolts in South Carolina's history. It was believed, apparently, that the Georgia Codes were written with so much quote-unquote humanity that enslaved people would understand they had it better there than in any other colony and would therefore act accordingly. Within five years, however, the Slavery Code was rewritten by the Georgia Commons House of Assembly, and the new code reflected the influence of South Carolina and the large plantation style. And with that, Oglethorpe's plan for the colony was done. Interested in owning some Footnoting History merch? You can find out more through our shop link at www.footnotinghistory.com. Want to support the show and keep it open access? Our Patreon is at patreon.com forward slash footnoting underscore history. You can also follow us on Twitter at History Footnote or Facebook and Instagram as Footnoting History. And of course, the best stories are always in the footnotes.